Well, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. I serve as the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. As many of you know, I released a book back in the spring called Your Identity in the Trinity, Discovering God's Grace in the Gospel, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to be able to have written that and have it published. Um, The foreword was written by Dr. Jeff Orge, who is the president of Gateway Seminary. Um, It was endorsed by uh, Herschel York uh, at Southern Seminary and Jim Shaddix at Southeastern Seminary and others. And so many of you I know have checked it out on Amazon. And so what I want to do today is to actually read another chapter. I think I, I did the chapter on your identity and the Holy Spirit And there seemed to be some good feedback from that. And so um, on this podcast, I want to read from the chapter on your identity in the Father. This is from chapter 4. So basically what I'm going to do in this podcast, like I did in the last one, is just to read this chapter from the book. That'll kind of give you a taste of what the book is about if you want to go check it out for yourself. And so this is chapter 4, Your Identity in the Father. And like I begin every chapter, I usually begin with a quote from somebody. And so this chapter begins with a quote from Charles Spurgeon, where Spurgeon says, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So let's begin chapter four your identity in the Father. Albert Einstein is considered one of the most brilliant men ever to live. When asked this question, what's the most difficult thing in the world to understand? Guess what his answer was? The income tax. The John Hopkins Magazine website provides a list of the most difficult things for humans to understand or perform. For example, Japanese is the most challenging language for Americans to learn. The most difficult math problem to solve involves using only a compass and an unmarked straight edge to divide a 60-degree angle into three equal parts. In other words, the task involves constructing a 20-degree angle with no protractors allowed. You can't do it. Scientists declare the concept of dark matter, the most challenging mystery of astronomy to grasp. The Whipple procedure, or removal of pancreatic cancer, proves the most intricate surgery to perform because the pancreas is the most deeply embedded organ in the human body. Are there some specific teachings or doctrines in the Bible that are equally difficult to understand? Theologically, the doctrine of election and predestination may be one of the most challenging teachings to discern or embrace, but this truth is crucial to finding our identity in the Trinity. This heading is called Chosen by the Father. One of the most profound truths that affects our gospel identity comes in the reality that the Father has sovereignly chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 3-6 reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in 
the beloved. Throughout the Bible, we see God choosing both individuals and nations. In Genesis 6, God chose Noah to build the ark. In Genesis 12, God chose Abraham to be the father of many nations and to bless him. He chose Jacob over Esau. He chose the nation of Israel to be his treasured people. He chose David to be king of Israel. God has the sovereign right to choose based upon his will alone. Psalm 135.6 states, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. In Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, God emphatically states, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Job 42, 2 states, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The scripture is very clear that God is sovereign and can do whatever he wants to do. No force in the universe moves God's hand or stops his plans. In mercy, the Lord chose individuals simply because he wanted to choose them. In addressing the nation of Israel, God says in Deuteronomy 7, 6-8, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and showed you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. There was no merit, goodness, strength, or anything positive in Israel that moved the Lord to choose them as his people. He merely set his electing love on Israel because he was pleased to do so. We need to have this perspective when it comes to sovereign election. There's nothing positive within us that motivated God to choose us. In eternity past, God didn't look down the corridors of time and foresee anything good, worthy, or honorable in us that would prompt him to choose us as his children. He merely chose us because he wanted to choose us. Paul echoes this truth in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13-14. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This next heading is called the timing of election. When did this election or choosing occur? Ephesians 1.4 tells us that it was before the foundation of the world. And 2 Thessalonians 2.13 tells us that it was from the beginning. God made his choice before any of us were born or he created the world. 2 Timothy 1.8-9 reads, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Paul affirms that God gave us grace in Christ Jesus before the ages began. This truth is just another way of saying that God's sovereign choice of his people to be saved occurred before the creation of the world. Revelation 13.8 affirms this reality. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. The names of all those who would believe in Jesus as Lord have already been written down in the book of life before the creation of the world. In eternity past, God decided to save a massive number of people. 
millions upon millions. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. This unconditional election considered the total depravity of humans. Since humans are sinful and dead in transgressions, we will never make the first move toward God in saving faith. God must initiate our salvation from first to last. Jesus gives some great insight into this doctrine of sovereign election in John 6, 37-39. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus makes an emphatic statement that the Father has given to him a people, his sheep or the elect. As a result of the Father's giving these people to Jesus, they will infallibly come to him in saving faith. Also, Jesus will not lose any of them, nor will he ever cast them out, but he will raise them up on the last day. Jesus could not be clearer on the sovereignty of the Father in election. God graciously gives the elect to Jesus as a love gift. These and only these will most certainly come to faith to Jesus. Our Savior will permanently keep these chosen ones, and he will bring them to completion of their final salvation in heaven on the last day. This electing love of the Father giving the Son a particular people before time has historically been called the covenant of redemption. The second London Baptist Confession provides a good definite definition of the covenant of redemption as, quote, that eternal covenant transaction that was between the Father and the Son about the redemption of the elect, unquote. Theologian Louis Burkhoff explains this eternal covenant as, quote, the agreement between the Father giving the Son as head and redeemer of the elect and the Son voluntarily taking the place of those whom the Father had given him, unquote. Next big section is called Adopted by the Father. What is the goal of this election? Ephesians 1, 4-5 says that God made a choice of certain people, and then he made this choice before creation, but to what end or purpose? Well, Paul claims that the Father chose us to be holy and blameless before him. Election is an incredible privilege of God's mercy and grace, but there's also a responsibility and purpose behind God's choosing. God's purpose in electing us was not just to save us from the damages of sin and grant us eternal life, but his choice of us involved creating for himself a people conformed to the likeness of his son Jesus, a treasured people, to be holy and blameless. In verse 5, Paul introduces us to God's act of predestination. You may ask, what's the difference between election and predestination? Election focuses on God's sovereign choice. Predestination focuses on our destiny or destination. The word predestined means to determine our destiny beforehand. What exactly is our future? This verse gives us our destination, to be adopted as the Father's children through Jesus Christ. The Heavenly Father not only chose us, but has set His eternal love on us, especially in the doctrine of adoption. What exactly is adoption? Adoption signifies our entry into a privileged position as children of the Father. Think about the staggering implications of this. Before time began, God in His infinite mercy chose you, a helpless, hopeless, and hellbound sinner, not because you were any good or had anything positive to offer God. In light of this fallen condition, He predestined us for adoption as His children. We have the glorious privilege of being sons and daughters of a living God who created the universe. 
J.I. Packer states, quote, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all, end quote. Before God redeemed us, who was our quote-unquote natural father? What was our identity as sons and daughters before salvation? Well, Paul addresses this in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This first tells us that we were once sons of disobedience and children of wrath due to our sin. We belong to our father, the devil, the ruler of the air. But now what has happened? God has taken us from our natural state of rebellion and sin and adopted us into his family forever. You may often hear people say that everybody in the world is God's child. Is that true? Who specifically are God's children? Only those who are in Christ by sovereign election and adoption. Only those who have trusted Christ for salvation. God created all people in his image, and they have dignity as his creation, but they're not his children. Only those who have faith in Christ are children of God. The prologue to John's gospel affirms this truth. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 1.12 Notice how becoming a child of God is now a right that we possess, which means before we believed in Jesus, we had no right to be a child of God. We had no access to Him, and we were under His just condemnation. But now we have the right to become children of God, and with that privilege comes the intimacy of walking with Him as our Father. Paul describes our new status as adopted children in Galatians 3.26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Well, what does it mean to be a son of God? We did not have to work for or earn this sonship, but God adopted us out of his good pleasure for us before the world even began. In that ancient culture, daughters had no rights and could not inherit property. The son would be the legal heir of the father's estate or wealth. Women were legally forbidden to have this status. So Paul makes a radical statement that all believers in Jesus, both men and women, are legal heirs to eternal life because God has adopted us into his family. As a Christian woman, you may find being called a quote-unquote son of God a little awkward. You would think that Paul should have said we are sons and daughters of God. We miss the radical nature of Paul's statement concerning sonship in that ancient world that would have shocked his original audience. In both the Jewish and Roman culture of his day, one would never call women sons of God. Here's the beauty of our adoption as sons. Before you were in Christ, you were under the law. You were imprisoned by sin. You were dead in your transgressions. You were in the bondage of despair with no hope of getting out. You were hopeless, helpless, and hell-bound. But through faith in Christ, God adopts you into his family with all the rights and privileges of a son and heir. And Paul continues this line of thought concerning adoption in Galatians 4, 6-7. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. 
and if a son, then an heir through God. On the cross, Jesus objectively, by his blood, purchased our adoption as sons as a bona fide reality. He secured for us a legal status before God as full heirs of eternal life. The Father legally adopts us because of the cross of Christ. It is an objective reality that is once and for all. But because of the pressures of the world, the flesh and the devil, we often don't experientially feel or sense that security or assurance of God's love for us in Christ. Sometimes as adopted children, we forget our father's love for us. We start thinking of ourselves as slaves again instead of as of sons. Because of Christ's redemption, we are adopted as sons, whether we feel like it or not. Romans 5.5 5 tells us that hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The Holy Spirit secures our internal subjective experience of this adoption, leading us to cry out passionately, Abba. The Holy Spirit does this internal work in our hearts to bring us assurance, comfort, and confidence to sense the overwhelming love of the Father. When you experience doubt or despair and feel weak and overcome by sin, the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us comforts us, encourages us, and empowers us to seek the Father in prayer. Because the Holy Spirit has reminded us that we are indeed children of God, we cry out to Him with this profoundly emotional response of intense joy from the recesses of our heart. In our adoption, Jesus secures our permanent status as sons, while the Holy Spirit guarantees our daily experience of it. How does the Holy Spirit make us aware of our adoption? We can approach our Heavenly Father with a freedom that comes through this affectionate, intimate, confident access we have as His children. We don't relate to God as a slave to a master, but as a son to a father. Hebrews 4.16 encourages us, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Rejoice in this freedom of adoption. Find satisfaction in having intimate access to the Father. Never forget that the Holy Spirit empowers you to cry out, Abba, as our loving shepherd. The Father loves to give, 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 loves to give good gifts to his adopted children. Jesus tells us the heart of the Father in Matthew seven eleven. If you then who are evil know how to give, give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. As our Father, God lavishes us with good gifts because it flows from His very nature as a merciful God. He has adopted us into His family, and therefore we have all the rights and privileges that come with being a child of the King. The next big section is called the basis for election. What is the foundation behind all of God's sovereign activity and predestination and adoption? In Ephesians 1.5, Paul tells us that the Father chose us according to the purpose of His good pleasure. God took great joy in His election of sinners. This truth is staggering to me. I know that there is nothing good in me. I know that I was once dead in my sins and an enemy of God. I know that I was a child of wrath. I know that I was once blinded by Satan and enslaved to the passions of my flesh. 
I know that I was a rebellious, outrageous lawbreaker. To think that God took great pleasure and joy in choosing me is beyond belief or explanation. None of us can honestly explain why the Father chose us. The only answer we can give is that it is a result of God's sovereign joy and desire to do so. And in the end, he merely wanted to do it for his good pleasure. Our Heavenly Father profoundly loves us as his children. Romans 5.8 captures the essence of this love. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God did not wait for us to get our act together or clean ourselves up to save us. God did not give us the impossible task of earning our salvation through good works to redeem ourselves. Instead, he loved us while, we're, while we were still ungodly and alienated sinners and took the initiative to send Jesus to die on the cross for us. Paul continues this theme of God's great love in Ephesians 2, 4-7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we've been saved. and Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God overcame our spiritual deadness by making us alive in Christ. This new birth results from God's riches of mercy, great love, and the immeasurable riches of his grace. The Apostle John describes God's love in 1 John 3, 1 through 2. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he ends, as he is. John begins by saying, see, pay attention. Let this truth grip your hearts. John wants us to stop dead in our tracks. Are you blown away that the infinite, holy, majestic God of the universe has loved us and adopted us as his children? This is our identity. Next big section is called accepted by the Father. Not only has the Father chosen and adopted us, but he has also accepted us on the account of Christ. Zephaniah 3.17 paints a beautiful picture of how the Father tenderly receives us. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The Lord made this promise to the nation of Israel during a time of intense rebellion and military oppression. This passage portrays God as a mighty one, which conveys the image of a powerful warrior who will conquer all of our enemies. Poetically, this verse gives three ways in which God shows his fatherly compassion to his people by rejoicing, quieting, and singing. One commentator makes this statement, quote, to consider Almighty God sinking in contemplations of love over a once wretched human being can hardly be absorbed by the human mind, end quote. Can you genuinely fathom how the creator of the universe rejoices over you as his child? Do you find bedrock assurance in the truth that our father will quiet you by his love? This Hebrew word for quiet can also mean that God will renew you with strength by granting you a sense of peace that passes understanding. This verse may be the only incident in the Bible where God himself is said actually to sing 
and he burst into joyous singing over his children. The writings of John Owen have profoundly influenced my understanding of this Trinitarian identity. One paragraph in his book, Communion with God, Father, Fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, had a dramatic impact on me when I first read it many years ago, and it continues to resonate with me. Here's what John Owen says. So much as we see the love of God, so much shall we delight in Him and no more. But if the heart be once much taken up with His eminency of the Father's love, it cannot choose but to be overpowered, conquered, and endeared to Him. Exercise your thoughts upon the eternal, free, and fruitful love of the Father. And when you do this, you will find that your heart is wrapped up in delight for him. Sit down a little at the fountain, and you will quickly discover the sweetness of the streams. You who have run from him will not be able to keep a distance from him for a moment. I love this imagery. He calls us to sit down with God by spending quality time in his presence to be overwhelmed by his love. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. And when you draw near and sit at the fountain of his love, you experience a sweetness in his presence. You won't want to run away anymore. You won't want to hide from God, become distracted by the world, or experience feelings of guilt and defeat. You will not be able to keep your distance from him at all because his love has overpowered your heart, and you desperately want to bask in his breathtaking affection for you in Christ. This is the greatest mystery in the universe that the sovereign God in all of his blazing holiness, perfect righteousness, and sovereign power would dare save sinners such as you and me. This love is grace unknown. It is unthinkable. It is unimaginable. It is a love beyond degree. What is our identity in the Father? We are chosen, adopted, and accepted by the Father. The next big section is called Our Joyful response. Since we are chosen, adopted, and accepted by the Father, how then should we respond to the Father? What should these truths produce in us as adopted, chosen, predestined children who were once his enemies and children of wrath? Praise. That's why Paul erupts with worship in Ephesians 1.6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Sovereign election should result in praise for God's grace. So how does Paul describe this grace? calls God's grace glorious. Sovereign grace reflects the Father's full glory, which shone brightly when he chose to save rebel sinners by electing them before the foundation of the world, predestining them to be adopted children, and lavishing them with inexhaustible love. So this next section says, our identity in the Father produces a deep humility. The Lord wasn't forced to choose us, He didn't have to love us. If he had not selected anybody for salvation, he would still be just and righteous. We could never lay a claim against God that he was unjust if he chose not to save anybody because all of us deserve hell. We are the worst of sinners who only deserve wrath. So we should never go around boasting about our election. We should never take our election for granted because God was never obligated to give us grace in the first place. This mercy should drive us to our knees in humility. It should make us humbly praise God for his glorious grace. Galatians 6.14 gives us this attitude. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of, Christ, cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. 
God's grace and election should never lead us to arrogance or an air of superiority that, we, that somehow we are worthier than others to receive salvation. We should never believe that somehow God has given us some special treatment because of something innate within us. Instead, from first to last, God elected us as a free gift of grace. Our loving Father was under no obligation to shower us with mercy. Our joyful response should overflow with deep humility. Next section is entitled, Our Identity in the Father Produces Assurance of Salvation. Since God determined in eternity past to save us infallibly by his unthwartable purpose, he assures us that we will never lose our salvation or fall away from the state of grace. Why would God go to great lengths from before time to elect us, adopt us, send Christ to die for us, and send the Holy Spirit to live in us just to let us falter and leave it up to us as the final determiner of our eternal salvation? The Father's eternal decree to rescue us from sin should give us the solid confidence that He will continue in both the present and the future to keep us saved. God's eternal, immutable love for us serves as the basis of our assurance. D.A. Carson explains, quote, God's love does not function exactly like ours. How could it? God's love emanates from an infinite being whose perfections are immutable. God does not, quote, fall in love with the elect. He doesn't not fall in love with us. He sets his affections on us. He does not predestine us out of some stern whimsy. Rather, in love, he predestines us to be adopted as his sons, end quote. Theodora Beza wrote, quote, The love that is in God is no passion arising of some good that it apprehends, but it is the very simple essence of God. The cause of that love is His. It is not in the creatures as though they were such as could allure God to love them, but it is rather in God, who of Himself is good and pours goodness upon His creatures, end quote. God's love for us never changes or fluctuates. Gerhardus Voss made this powerful statement, quote, the reason God will never stop loving you is that he never began, end quote. The Lord reassures us in Jeremiah 31, 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Next subsection here is our identity in the Father produces a desire for holiness. An unbalanced or hyper view of God's sovereignty and election may lead us to believe that we can engage in a lifestyle of rebellion and disobedience because God will automatically forgive us and doesn't care about how we live. Remember the truth that we've been chosen to be holy and blameless in Christ. The doctrine of election is not a license for us to live in blatant sin against God's law because, quote, after all, I'm elect and God's going to save me no matter how I live, end quote. This notion reflects pagan fatalism and not Christianity. You demonstrate evidence of your election by growing in holiness with a life that's pleasing to the Father. 1 Peter 1, 15-16 instructs us, But he is who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Hebrews twelve fourteen also admonishes us, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Our identity fuels our obedience. Our election serves as the impetus for our practice of godliness. Another subcategory here is our identity in the Father leads us to seek His glory above all. Jesus gave us the greatest commandment in Mark 12, 28-30. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that He answered them well, asked Him, which commandment is the most important of all? 
And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This commandment involves loving God with the totality of our lives. Since he first loved us, the Father frees us by grace to respond to his love for us with a reciprocal love for him. Because God is a gracious Father who has chosen, loved, and accepted us, we passionately love him back. Our greatest desire in life should be to love God. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he, have loved, that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God commands us to love him without equivocation and to seek his glory above all else. Everything comes back to the glory of God. Remember from back from chapter 1 that God is first and foremost interested in himself. That may sound abnormally foreign to our self-centered psyches, but God cares most about his glory alone, and he will not share it with anyone else. Isaiah 42, 8. Since God is majestically sovereign, he's chosen us, adopted us, and accepted us. In turn, we pursue his glory above all else as our ultimate desire in life. As transformed believers who find our identity in this beautiful relationship to the Father, everything in our thoughts, words, and deeds should redound to the glory of God. Are you passionately seeking the glory of God? Have you lost that childlike wonder and awe for the Father? Does your life's passion consist in making much of Him instead of making much of yourself? Are you daily amazed and assured by the glorious truth that you are chosen, adopted, and accepted by the Father? You discover, you discover your gospel identity by understanding your privileged status in the Father. Rest securely in that permanent position. That's the end of chapter 4, your identity in the Father. Again, I just wanted to give you a taste of what the book's about so that you can maybe go check it out on Amazon. Uh, there is a hardback, a paperback, and a Kindle version. And so I would love for you to, to read that. And if you have read this as one of my listeners, it would be really kind of you if you would go on Amazon and actually uh, review the book. Um, that would be very helpful. And so, again, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Uh, you can find all of my contact information at seancole.net. You can go to my Facebook page. You can go to the Understanding Christianity Facebook page. Uh, you can email me. All the different ways that you want to get a hold of me. Um, I would love to hear from you and interact with you. And so thank you for listening. Until next time, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus.